This is Israeli Technology Founders Speak, a podcast of conversations with successful Israeli high-tech and biotech entrepreneurs, with your host, Avraham Hermon. Guy Goldman is the founder and CEO of Olive Diagnostics, an Israeli startup that created a non-invasive, real-time urinalysis sensor that mounts to any toilet to detect early diseases and improve healthcare. Avraham sat down with Guy in the offices of Olive Diagnostics in Jerusalem to discuss how Guy came up with the idea, how he raised money, found his initial market, lessons he learned along the way, and tips for startup founders. This podcast is a creation of J.M.B. Davis Ben David, an intellectual property law firm serving clients around the world. You have great innovations. We keep them safe. It's not enough to just have a great startup idea or innovation. If you don't legally protect your innovations, products, and brand, anyone can claim them as their own. We keep your great innovation secure. Learn more by going to jmbdavis.com. That's J-M-B-D-A-V-I-S dot com. Welcome, Guy. Thanks for joining us on Israel Technology Founders Speak. I'm really happy to be here in your Jerusalem office. Thank you very much for having me. So I saw an example of your device or a prototype of your device at the Biomed convention in May in Tel Aviv. And that's when we started talking. And at first glance, it looked like you were standing there at a small booth with what looked like a toilet seat. And maybe if you looked at it closely, you saw some sensors on it. So tell us a little bit about what this toilet seat is and what it does. What we've created is really the world's first 100% passive, non-invasive urinalysis system. What happens is while a person urinates into the toilet, it doesn't matter where. They don't have to collect their urine. They don't have to touch it. They don't have to dab sticks, anything. They just pee the same way they have been for the past, you know, since they've been two and humanity since for the past 3,000 years. We've been using toilets for that long. Mm -hmm. And all you need to do is just urinate into the toilet. And as the urine is going down, while it's in motion going down, we're doing analysis horizontally on the drops. And what we're able to do is we're able to do, uh, we can detect the composition of the urine. So what molecules are inside that stream going down. And we're able to also detect characteristics of the urine, such as like a volume or pressure or color frequency, all those things that are related to the urine. Then we take that information, we put it into the cloud. And now person urinates five to seven times a day. So there's a lot of information going into the cloud. And urine is a extremely rich biomarker medium. So there's thousands of biomarkers in urine. And when you start combining the volume of urine with the color and the specific gravity and the pH and the proteins and whatever you have, you start to get very, very clear on what's going on inside the body. And our focus currently is on the elderly population and to do actually early detection of diseases. So we're not preventative. We're not trying to prevent the disease. Right now, we're just trying to early detect it before the person becomes symptomatic. Because if you take an 85-year-old woman who gets a UTI or something like that, she's hospitalized. She's hospitalized for two or three weeks. And she has, you know, she has a flu. She's, you know, she's, she's feverish. Dementia kicks in. She can't walk. She can't eat. She can't move. She's in pain. All these kind of other symptoms. But if you catch it before, you can give her cranberry juice or antibiotics and take care of it. And she never has to feel the symptoms. Mm-hmm. So early detect and early cure is kind of the, what we're going after. Sounds good, but it seems rather complicated. Are there technological barriers here that 
prevented others from doing this beforehand? What's, what's the secret? Ah, so the secrets we can't talk about too much. But let me tell you what we're doing on a, on a kind of a high level. Mm-hmm. And then we'll, if we need, we can dive into some of the more um, uh, interesting aspects. One of the things that I think that when we were at the uh, Biomed Convention, I said to you, I said that we're not just introducing a new technology, we're introducing a new science. So we had to create our own science to do what it is that we're doing. We're using something called spectroscopy. And spectroscopy, in its basic form, is sort of the way a microwave works. You put your food inside and then you send electromagnetic waves or light waves at the food. And it's a very, very particular frequency. It's at a frequency which makes the water molecules inside the food vibrate. And they vibrate violently, very quickly. And that vibration makes them heat up. And then that heats up the food outside. That's why they say a microwave, it heats from the inside out. Mm -hmm. Because at the molecular level, it's heating up and goes out. So we do the same thing. What we do is we send in light waves at different frequencies, and then they hit a molecule. And when they hit that molecule, they make it vibrate. What makes the molecule vibrate is the energy that you're putting in. So if you put in, say an example, you put in 100 units of energy, and it hits, let's say, a water molecule at a particular frequency, you're going to detect on the other side only 70 units of energy. Mm -hmm. Because that vibration absorbed 30 units of energy. So by knowing what you put in, you know what wavelength you put in, and you know what you got on the other side, you can detect what you hit on the way. Mm-hmm. Because if you hit a water molecule, it took 30 units of energy. But if you hit, a, I don't know, a protein molecule, it would go right through it. So you put right. in 100, you get 100. Mm-hmm. So you didn't hit that. So that, you know, and, and kind of a large, very high up, that, that's what we do. We do spectroscopy. What made it really difficult were three different things that we've overcome. When I started this company, I went to almost every single PhD of optics in Israel to ask them, is this possible? And everyone told me it was impossible. Mm-hmm. They're like 90% said it was impossible. And why? Because spectroscopy, it, it, you use a spectrometer. A spectrometer does spectroscopy. It's a big, big machine. It costs a million dollars and you find the universities and labs and stuff like that. And these spectrometers, you put a test tube inside a box and you put the box into the machine and you close the machine so it's completely silent. There's no mm-hmm. noise. And you do your measurement. We're doing it on the side of a toilet, okay? Mm-hmm. We have no idea what the light is around. We don't know what the light is in the toilet. Lights bouncing off the ceramics all over the place. It's crazy noisy. So from their perspective, initially, they were like, you can't do it because there's too much noise. Mm-hmm. And in optics, you deal with something called an SNR, a signal-to-noise ratio. And the signal-to-noise ratio is really, really, really small. So it's impossible to pick up anything. The other 5% that said, yeah, maybe if you do it fast enough and all that kind of stuff, the minute I told them, okay, yeah, but the sample's in motion. So we're detecting when the urine is falling down. And not only that, but there's no geometrical shape to the drop, right? Because there's enough drops. Some of them are triangular, square, circle. Mm -hmm. You know, you have all the different shapes. So there's no shape to it and it's in motion. So the other 5% who kind of agreed maybe you could do it in the toilet threw me out of the room. These are the things that we had to overcome. Now, there's no one in the world doing what we're doing. And the reason is, and you know, this is the Israeli side of our technology, the chutzpah, to even try it, to even try it, goes beyond what, you know, they teach in university and stuff like that. So no one's doing it. We assume that competition is going to come out of the woodworks mm-hmm. once they see, oh, wow, you can't do spectroscopy on a toilet on fluids in motion. Whoa. Okay. Why don't we do it? So we expect there to be more competition once the product's actually launched. Okay, great. And that's going to be soon, you told me, mm-hmm. right? So if you can talk about that, what are your time timelines for, for launch? So the week of the 22nd of May, which is next We're week. talking about, wow. Yeah. Very soon. Yep. Our, our first units are arriving in uh, in Holland. 
and uh, we're doing um, home care for the elderly. Uh, we're working with two different IOMT devices for remote monitoring in Holland, and they're actually purchasing the devices from us and installing them. They want to see how they're going to be using it inside their uh, existing uh, processes. IOMT, if you can just expand. Oh, there's IoT, Internet of Things, then this new acronym called IOMT, uh, Internet of Medical Things. Medical Things, right. Yeah. Okay. So I'm getting used to it myself. And the reason we're doing that is not so much to test the sensor to see if the sensor works. We've been clinically tested. We have probably close to 10,000 samples that we've done already. You know, mm-hmm. we know it works. But the question is, too, is A, are people going to sit on it? The mm-hmm. most basic, you know, or, you know, are they going to feel uncomfortable or, you know, we, we don't know how the, you know, the user is going to interact with it. And the other thing is, is it mechanically strong enough and, and robust enough? So we're actually testing the physical sensor, not, not so much the models and all that, that we know, mm-hmm. you know, we, we do that all the time. It's, it's testing to make sure that the, the device, and we do believe that we're going to have some sort of redesign that we're going to need to do. So we're doing about two months of testing. Then we're going to go into a redesign phase, redesign it because, you know, someone's going to sit on it and someone gets up on an awkward angle and the back breaks or snaps mm-hmm. or dents or I don't know what. We do a redesign on it and then we do a little short beta just to make sure the redesign worked. And then we go to mass manufacturing around October. Oh, wow. That sounds sounds soon. It is. Everything happens very fast in our company. Amazing. Let's hear a little bit about the motivation for starting Olive. What was uh, what motivated you as one of the, the founders to get this off the ground? Yeah. Medical was never really in my uh, portfolio. You know, mm-hmm. I'm more sales and management, a strong technical background, but been always in sales and management. And I, I have this thing and I always say is that any invention that goes off the evolutionary curve, it always starts from a really personal story. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example... An evolution, evolutionary curve is like, you know, you, you used to get your emails on your computer mm-hmm. and then they jump down to your phone and then to your watch and then soon you mean your glasses. And they're great technologies. If you look around, you see I have all of them, right? But those are an evolutionary curve of the technology. Things that skip over that, that aren't an evolutionary. Your analysis using optics on the side of a toilet, it's not evolutionary to anything since the world today is in chemical strips and stuff like that. Yeah. So it came from something very personal happened. And, and what happened was I was managing a, a large company in London and I was doing the uh, 10 force. So I was there for 10 days and back in Israel for four, 10 four. Mm-hmm. It's great. I racked up a lot of miles. It was, it was good. <laughs> but uh, what happened is one day when I was there, uh, I get this call from my mom who was living here in Israel. And, you know, she notifies me that she's been uh, diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Mm-hmm. So there's that whole like, could that be? You're so healthy, you jog, you play tennis, like, you know, whatever you get over quick, pretty quick. She did some surgeries and then she started chemotherapy and not having any medical background. The only thing I know about chemotherapy is the, um, the big bad side effects, you know? Yeah. And while she was undergoing that, I'm look, I find myself calling home like four times a day to see how she's doing. Cause I'm waiting for these side effects to, to kick in, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm asking just basic questions. You know, is she eating? Is she walking? What did she eat? When did she drink last? You know, all these. Now, you know, people who are watching her in Israel, they're like, hey, it's really nice that you care and it's heartwarming and all that. But either stop calling or come home, but it's got to change today because I was driving them nuts. And I, I understand them, you know. Yeah. You're sitting there from afar and you're just constantly calling to see what's going on. So um, I kind of like didn't want to come back to Israel so quick because London is really a fun town. And uh, so I started looking around for technologies that can do, you know, pretty much exactly what we're doing right now. Just to monitor. Just the basic stuff, you know. I don't want to go – 
start doing blood counts. I don't understand what that means. Mm-hmm. You know? But is she dehydrated? I understand that. Or is she starving? Or is her mental health down? I understand those things. It was 2017. If you remember back 2017, we thought we were at the pinnacle of everything discovery possible. There's no, nothing more to discover, right? We weren't afraid of anything then, right? No. And we thought we had everything, you know? You're feeling comfortable. So I started looking around. I can't find anything. And it was driving me crazy. I spent a lot of time because I'm like, okay, I must be doing the wrong search things in Google, you know? And the only thing that I could get her was a watch. So it gave me like pulse and, or whatever, heartbeat and uh, steps maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that wasn't what was interesting to me. and. Then my dad got sick and it became, everything became super complicated. So I, I came home at the end. But, um, after they passed, I said, wait a minute. That was really frustrating. That whole experience seemed so dark ages to me. So I said, okay, well, anyone who's my age has parents who are plus minus their age. Mm-hmm. 78% of elderly people have some kind of chronic disease. So there are kids who are worried about their parents and would like to know what's going on. And that's what kind of got started. And I said, okay, well, A, there's a market for this. B, is it even possible? And going back to the stuff that I studied in university, I did study physics in university. There were two equations that I looked at that based on those equations, it should work. And then when I spoke to these optic professors all the time, I would say to them, yeah, but show me in the equations why it wouldn't work. Because if this is bigger than this and this is bigger than this, then it should work, right? And no one could give me an answer why the equations wouldn't work. That's why I decided I'm going to go after it. Because mm-hmm. people took like offense to the fact that I was even wanting to do this. It was, I think it was kind of like, I'm driving down the the value of spectroscopy by putting it on the toilet, mm-hmm. you know? I think people yeah. are a little bit offended by that. Interesting. Yeah. I, you know, because the, they took like offense to them. I mean, they literally threw me out of their offices. Like, <laughs> it was like a, almost, you know, it, it was aggressive. But because no one can give me an answer why it won't work, I was like, okay, well, let's give it a try. Mm. So, so you're really also looking for very specific things when you're analyzing urine, right? It's not just the capabilities of a regular spectroscopy apparatus. Well, when you do spectroscopy, you always go in knowing what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. You don't just give me a spectrum and, you know, I'll analyze it. You say, okay, I'm looking for nitrite. Then you do experiments to, to find what nitrite looks like on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, there's 3,100 different molecules in urine. Most of them are not stuff that's too interesting. So mm-hmm. what we actually did is we went to, um, assisted living facilities initially and we said to them, okay, what, what diseases are bothering you the most? What ones are you guys dealing with all the time? And they told us that it's UTI. Urinary tract infection. Urine, urinary tract infection. Kidney stones. Mm-hmm. Heart failure. Dehydration. And constipation. Those are the things that are, are like on their top five list of things. And then what we did is we then started speaking to medical people. Okay, what molecules do you find in urine to detect these diseases? And then we did our all of our um, analysis on those. And that's why if you look at the list of the molecules, those are the molecules that we have. They, it's come driven from the market. I see. Because the natural tendency, people are thinking like creatinine and ketones and stuff like that, which mm-hmm. we're going to be doing throughout 2022. We're going to be adding those molecules. Like signals of kidney failure and the like. Kidney failure, but creatinine gives you like a physiological creatinine. So you can look at a workout to see how your body behaved to the workout. So maybe, you know, you run two hours a day, but you also do yoga 50 minutes and you'll find out that the yoga is putting more stress in your body than the running. You know, you wouldn't think that, but mm-hmm. it's a possibility. Creatinine is very important for a lot of different things. The albumin creatinine ratio mm-hmm. talks about your kidneys and how well your kidneys are doing. Ketones from a nutritional. If you're, you know, people are on the ketogenic diet, they're checking all the time to see if they're in ketosis. Yeah. So it sounds like you have uh, still a lot of development ahead of you. Till the exit, baby. Till the exit. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about that, about uh, raising funds. How did you raise funds and get companies or 
government interested in this? So we're 16 employees right now. By the end of the year, we're probably going to be about 27. So we're rapidly uh, looking for people. And so if anyone, when one of the listeners are, you know, a data scientist or a programmer, please give us a call. You know, the one thing I think Israel does really well is uh, they developed the uh, Israeli Innovation Authority, the IIA, which funds high risk type projects like ours. And so we had a private investor give us some money on the back of a term sheet that we got from an incubator here in Israel. And the incubation period was a two-year period that we, uh, we, we've we gone through. And they gave us offices and they gave us uh, kind of some, you know, some support type stuff to get the company going. And the IIA put in a substantial investment, close to a million dollars investment at that stage. Mm-hmm. And it really brought us from a concept. We did some proof of concept to show that you could do spectroscopy in an open environment mm-hmm. using the method that we used. But the incubation period really got us through an MVP. And then mm-hmm. kind of everything changed when you had the MVP because all of a sudden people are like, wow, this does work. You're not trying to sell me a time machine. This is something that truly works. Yeah. And then we were able to raise an additional additional funds. So we raised an additional about $2.2 million. And since we've gotten uh, additional money from the IIA outside of the uh, incubator, so that was that's very good. And we're we, you know, we have term sheets for another round that we're doing right now, a bridge round. And then we're going to start our round A somewhere towards the end of the summer because we're already going to have revenues. Mm-hmm. And now it's about, you know, growth and scale and stuff like that. Wow. Okay. Impressive. So is this a route that you recommend going for companies that are eligible for the Israel Innovation Authority programs? There's two sides to that. One is that the incubator does take a big portion of equity and you kind of have to get that. You have to get over that. It took me a few months after I was already inside to get over that frustration. Like, how dare they? You mm-hmm. know, but once you're over that, it's pretty, it's pretty good. It's, it's not a bad system for, for growing the company. The IIA is extremely diligent when they do their analysis. So they bring in, you know, their government. So they have mm-hmm. endless amount of funds, right? And they'll bring in anyone that they need to bring in. So we had a urologist test us. We had a chemist. We had a physicist. We had an electro-optical guy. I mean, they just brought everyone and mm-hmm. everyone had a say in the matter. And you had to convince every single person, you know, on their own. So it's not an easy process, but once you get there and and they they buy in, so I think there's two things. One is they're pretty hands off. You know, you do the mm-hmm. reporting, and as long as you're staying within, you're doing the reporting the way they want to see it. It's completely hands off. The other thing is it's the IIA, and I'm not trying to promote the IIA here, but mm-hmm. uh, but what they do have is they have grants for every step of the process. Right. You know? So from development, from conceptual to scale up. You know, or, or to, uh, MVP from MVP to, uh, to product from product to mass manufacturing. And then they already know you. So it, it should go easier. Mm-hmm. And, and I think our second, our second grant was easier than our first one because, you know, they already saw that we achieved what we said we were going to achieve. They see it's working. They got pretty excited. It was nice because they gave us the full money that we wanted, which is kind of unusual. Nice. And I guess they invited you to the convention where I met you. So yeah. So that's another plus, right? I got to meet you. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk a little bit about how you expect to commercialize your product. That's, I think, important for founders to think about. They have this great revolutionary invention. It has to have some sort of model for monetization. So yeah. what's, what's yours and what brought you to that conclusion? When we first started, the company wasn't called Olive Diagnostics. It was called It's About Me. And we were a wellness product. So we started out as a, as a wellness on the wellness route, mostly because I was scared of the regulatory. Yeah. Hmm. Again, I don't come from medical, so I don't even really know what it is. It's just the FDA. It's like this big, Scary oh my monster. God, you don't yeah. want to deal with it. 
we said, okay, we'll do the, um, we'll do wellness. And that was kind of our initial direction. Then we did when, when we started in, in the incubator, we, uh, we were asked to take a closer look on medical versus wellness. And we kind of got to the conclusion that it's easier to go from a medical device to a wellness, mm-hmm. but you don't see so many examples of wellness going to medical. Interesting. So there's some, you know, um, Apple, I think is a good example. They're, they're moving more from a wellness to a medical device. Mm-hmm. But if you look at Philips and you look at Siemens, you look at all those, they always go the other way. So we decided to, to take a deeper look into that and, and go down the medical path. Then we said, okay, we're coming up with a new, new product. You know, it's not like a new Bluetooth headset. Here you have to educate the world that this exists and what it can do and stuff like that. So we started looking for how can we do it as a B2B versus a B2C and who needs it the most. And that's how we got to like the assisted living facilities because it's in their best interest to have something like this. So they can early detect diseases in their patients. Yeah. A is like a premium service that they can offer their users, but B, because it reduces the cost of hospitalization, right. of uh, lack of vacancy and stuff like that. And for us, we sell to one and they sell to many. And that was kind of the B2B model that made more sense to us. We don't want to stay here for too long. So um, the device that you saw at the biomed, and it looks like a toilet seat, it looks big and whatever, that's made specially for the elderly people. Mm-hmm. 2023, we're launching our new product, which we call the K-Clip, which is just a clip-on device. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be chrome. It's going to look really cool. It's going to look like a gadget that you put onto your toilet, just under, just like, you know, those duck kind of water cleaning things. Sure. So it's going to be something like that. So you use your own seat and you, you don't change anything. You just clip mm-hmm. it on. And then we're going to be going after the B2C market. Right. But what we're looking at doing, and and here here's the risk or the opportunity, but what we need to do in our first installations at these is do a tremendous amount of PR that's going to grab the attention of the children of the people who we're installing this at. Hmm. We need to drive the market to recognize this through the fact that their parents have it or they want it for their parents and then roll out the, oh, you can use it yourself. It doesn't only have to be for your parent. Interesting. One last question is, what advice do you have for founders? People have ideas, maybe even revolutionary ideas. What one piece of advice can you give them moving forward? So the classic thing is don't go, don't do it, you know, but I I don't think Uh that's true. I think people who are innovators in their spirit, just what they have to do. So it's no use telling them not to do it. The one thing that you have to get used to and you have to know what's coming because this is my third company. So I've done this before and I've been through the trenches, but not like this. This was the first time I did it like like a startup. The other ones were either start-ins in different companies or we got bought out before we even started out. You have to learn to deal with rejection. You have to know how to deal with rejection because rejection happens all of the time. And I always say, if I don't get you know rejected by investors too rejections a day. I'm not talking to enough investors because I'm not getting rejected twice a day. Wow. And it's not just investment rejection. It's rejection on the technology where it just doesn't work. And you're looking at it, you're like, what the hell? Electricity is going through. Why is not light not going on? You know, mm-hmm. just stuff like that. Rejections from uh, job offers. So you, you know, you, you interview a guy for 20,000 years and then he says no. Rejection comes in every shape and form and it's going to come every single time because I, I guess until you're not big enough, you're a joke. And no one's taking you really seriously. Um, we had suppliers who denied us. So you're constantly getting rejected. And um, and you have to be able to cope with that. You have to know. And it's, it's not about not feeling it. I mean, every time I get rejected, you know, really bad thoughts go through my head. It's about the time it takes you to get out of it. And the right. quicker you can get out of the rejection, like that mode of, oh, my God, I waste all this time. 
these guys are so stupid because you're know, always you're thinking everyone's so stupid they don't get it. They, they don't, don't agree with it. me, so they must be. Yeah, I mean, can't they see? <laughs> and I'm sure every single founder thinks that way. Like, how do they not see the potential? It's huge. So they are stupid, and mm-hmm. that's what you have to think. And don't bask in it. Get out of it as quick as you can and move to the next. Because if you're seeking money, at the end you'll get it. It's about do you have enough air? Do you have enough oxygen to last till someone says yes? Someone will say yes. And definitely someone's going to say yes. The question is, do you have enough oxygen? And just take rejection. You know, they're stupid. (laughs) So thanks for this motivational and I think important advice and for taking the time to talk with me and to be on this podcast and uh, looking forward to hearing great things from you and Olive. Thank you very much. That was Guy Goldman, the founder and CEO of Olive Diagnostics. We hope you enjoyed this episode. There are many more to come. Do you have a great innovation or startup idea? We'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us by going to our website, jmbdavis.com. And if you go to jmbdavis.com forward slash startup, you'll see we have a special site specifically made for startups to help startups protect their innovations. Please be in touch with us and find out how we can help you. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to bringing you the next episode.